Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, thanks for joining the conversation. Today I'm sharing the mic with Amanda Quick. Amanda is a speaker, quantum energy healer, and coach, and author of the recently released book, The Sex Trafficker's Wife, a story of truth, faith, and trust in self. So after a series of surreal and devastating events that turned Amanda's life upside down, she forged a new path for herself and her children thanks to her unwavering commitment to healing and a tremendous amount of self-awareness. So welcome to the show, Amanda. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You know, I feel like a really good place to start is how you really landed on the moment of deciding to write your story because there's a lot of detail obviously that we'll want to get into about your story itself but Mm -hmm. having gone through my own significant trauma i feel like just even getting to a place where you can document what you've gone through and being far enough along your healing journey to feel confident that that is something that you can handle is in and of itself, its own journey. Absolutely. You know, so right after my divorce was finalized, which was two weeks before the pandemic hit the world. So I found myself in a whole new, whole new reality in every sense of that word. And it really struck me. I had this immense amount of gratitude. I had this immense, just overwhelming feeling of, oh my God, I did it oh my God, I succeeded. And in a way that I, I don't think I had really ever at least acknowledged before it's, it's something that I had accomplished. And not only had I succeeded, but I succeeded in a, you know, they were never, my kids never had to be quarantined with their father. They were like, everything changed. And it, it struck me that not only had I succeeded, but that I created this new reality for myself. And it also struck me how many people end up sharing custody with their abusers and their children's abusers, and especially women of color and in economic underprivileged areas that they don't even have the financial means, the education, anything to begin to even have these fights. And my divorce, and I'm a upper middle-class privileged white woman was over $75,000. I can speak to the (laughs) cost of divorce, especially if you are in a no-fault state. And that is unfortunately another, um, I think, detriment to the system or the people who are being pushed through the system, especially in cases such as ours where the divorces were essential. Um, And to have to find a way to finance that is something that honestly is not discussed enough. It's not discussed. And the onus is on the traumatized individual to educate every single judge and jury on the effects of trauma and what happens and why we made the choices we made, why we stayed and all of the things at our expense. Yes. And so it struck me as this overwhelming, I succeeded at something that almost nobody does. The majority of people end up sharing custody with their abusers and their children's abusers and continue to be traumatized their entire child's life. And the children are really the ones who suffer the most because then they get this pattern installed and we go on to repeat the same thing. And the fact that I did succeed despite the expense and because truly it wasn't money that won my case. Money allowed me to start the fight, but it was for a very long time. It looked like I was going to end up sharing custody with a man who was going to abuse my children. It was a change in me, but without the money, I couldn't have even begun. And so it was so loud that people needed to hear this story. People needed to hear the story. They needed to understand the details that I went through because majority of people on the outside, they're like, what you, you, he was arrested for what? And you, what? And you stayed. And it's just the immediate judgment, the immediate projection that I should feel shame, that I should be 
at fault that I should have my kids taken away from me because I kept them in that situation. And I have received a ton of judgment as I've shared my story. When you and I first spoke, we discussed that there, while the circumstances are very different in their own right, it, we both were faced with really needing to completely uproot what we thought our reality was and being like, no, this is the actual reality. Now you have to deal with this shit and you're going to have to confront the things that you don't want to confront. And so when people on the outside have opinions on that, it's both, I think, frustrating from the standpoint of you have no idea what I've been going through, but then you also have a lot of people being like, your life should be a lifetime movie. And you're like, that's not a compliment. I've heard that so many times. And I'm like, it's better than any lifetime movie I've seen. Yeah, you're like, somebody write this script. I'm ready for it. <laughs> but you know, it really, you highlight something around parenting rights when it comes to abusive situations. And two of my best friends share custody with their abusers. And literally in m recent moments, I've been talking to my best friend about how completely chaotic her life remains in certain regards because you can't extract that person from your life. You can't pull yourself far enough away from it when legally speaking, there's some sort of binding there. So I think it's a real testament to your ability to acknowledge within yourself the importance of disregarding the comments from the peanut gallery, so to speak, and then trusting yourself that you could make the case and that you could get what you ultimately needed for yourself and for your children. And because the people that I know have tried, they've done what they need to do and what they can do. And sometimes the system just doesn't allow you the freedom that you deserve. And I'd love for you to share a little bit about how the ultimate sort of coming together of these events allowed you to get to a place where the custody was yours. And like you mm -hmm. said, you know, you, thank goodness, the timing of it all prevented it from really impacting your kids in what ultimately became a state of isolation for all of us. Correct. Yes. So, you know, I, despite his felony offense and despite the, the charges and everything and being a felon on sex offender probation, my uh, husband at the time still had his full legal parenting rights because in the state of Colorado, your constitutional right to parent isn't removed when you are a sex offender. They had actually just updated the Supreme Court precedent. And so when he pled guilty to some attempted solicitation of a minor, he gained back his parenting rights. And because I was still in my traumatized, gaslighting, manipulative state, I let him move back home, you know, thinking we're going to heal as a family and all the things. But what that meant is once I did start to wake up and need to leave the marriage, I then had to explain why I stayed. I had to prove that my children were not only in danger, but they were in danger in that present moment by their father, because the state basically believes that your kids are different. You're going to treat your kids different. And what happened in the past, you're in therapy, you're in the treatment programs, right? And so it was almost irrelevant other than to talk about the the day-to-day -day stuff. You hit the nail on the head with like the irrelevance of the circumstance. Like I was dealing with something in my divorce greatly related to um, drug use and mm -hmm. spending my money, basically just like taking advantage of every possible opportunity that my ex could and then being told, yeah, but you stayed. Yeah, exactly. You're like, that's exactly. super helpful feedback. Thank you. Can I pay you more <laughs> money to have the legal system screw me over? That would be great. Yeah. It's like I the fact that they would let somebody who has a sex offender charge on their record remain in proximity to yes. a child is absurd. Yes. And that is the current reality in the majority of the states. And I suspect in Canada as well. But the truth is because I stayed and it's interesting because I always like looking back, the criminal court just assumed that I would know that I was being abused. They just assumed that I would know that I had been gaslighted and manipulated and I wouldn't have allowed him in my life and my children's life because I, I had all of the information at all times, right? Clearly like they, there's oh, zero recognition. So oh, that hits so much. That's what, <laughs> that's what makes it so hard to work through too, because you go through those cycles in your head. You're like, but I knew, but I didn't know. Cause you didn't know to listen right. to your body. You didn't know no. to trust yourself because somebody who manipulates you and abuses you psychologically, their entire exactly. MO is to get you to question what you think you know. 
Yes, exactly. Your entire reality is created by somebody else. Yeah. And even if there's some part of you that knows that's not right, the identity and who you are and everything in your existence is to prove that correct, because that's what's holding yourself together. I was incredibly trauma bonded to my, my husband because we were going through this criminal case together. The only person who understand what I was going through was the person who caused the problem. So the only one I could talk to, the only one I could feel safe with was my husband. And so it, it only deepened the trauma bond. It only deepened my literal addiction to the love bombing cycle and the withdrawal cycle. It, it only deepened all of that. So relatable, by the way, like it's so relatable and it makes me feel like the amount of people that could hear this and say, oh my gosh, like, I feel that I feel that so deeply because you're, you've thrown your entire life into question. And like you said, you wanted to be able to heal as a family. You thought that that was at the time, the right thing to do to keep your family in that, you know, that joined state. That's why you Mm -hmm. marry somebody. That's why you have kids with somebody or have a family. Like you create that ecosystem for yourself. And so to feel like you have to blow that up entirely is in and of itself a really scary thought, let alone your brain is locked in survival mode after years of psychological abuse, which to your point is often, I want to say unbeknownst to us, but I don't know that that's even the right way of phrasing it because something viscerally knows, but you're in this sort of state of constant confusion as by design. And I actually was in therapy this morning and I was kind of talking about how having this conversation was an interesting time for me because I feel like I've gotten really far on my healing journey but there are moments where I know where the relatability exists that it's going to be like, remember that feeling? Mm-hmm. And something that came up and I've written on my desk is, where did it start that the feeling for me was if there's separation in a relationship, that that is the the biggest disruption that can happen? And it sounds a little bit like you had that sense of it too. It's like, if we are no longer together, then that is the most profound disruption that can happen that will like just blow up my entire life. But what you can't realize when you're in it is that your life has already exploded. <laughs> you're just you're just standing in it. A hundred percent. And you know, even even before he was arrested, even the years that that were before, you know, he stopped coming home regularly. He wouldn't answer his phone. He would be working late. And how dare you question my commitment to the family and all of that? And I would have all of these feelings and emotions. And then he would walk in the door and it would vanish. It was like, I couldn't be mad because he was in front of me and he was here and I had to move on. Was that you shutting down because you didn't want to have to have more of the conflict? Because for me, I know it was like the fear would constantly be bred very similar, like not answering the phone, Mm -hmm. going and doing Mm -hmm. shady things that like I can sense. And then I'm, you know, random things are happening that I can't map to something logical, but then they're there and they're saying things that are completely opposite of what your feelings are. So they're taking advantage of the fact that you've been so elevated, your nervous system is so out of whack that when they come back and it is like the tiniest crumb of validation, you're like, okay, that's good. I feel good. I'm I'm better. That that was how I'd feel. The moment he walked in the door, it's okay now. And I would just drop it. I would let it all go. There was no fight to be had because if I implied that he was not doing everything he possibly could for us and the family, then I would be made to feel guilty for ever feeling that. And I was wrong and that wasn't the intention he had and you know, all of the, all of the things. And so as long as he was there, he was here, it was okay. And that would continue to happen. And after the arrest, I took it on myself to keep the family together. I didn't actually recognize the fact that he's the one who caused the problem. It was on me to keep us together. And I took all of that blame on me because I also had a ton of trauma about my own dad leaving and not being in my life and what that path that sent me on. And I didn't want that for my kids either. And that was, that was my responsibility to fix and my responsibility to support him so that he could be present in the kids' lives. It was so convoluted. And yet I was so certain that that was my role. And so it just deepened all of these pieces for me to do everything possible to help him, to make him heal. I became his healer and his therapist and his spouse and his everything because that's what I was supposed to do. Well, you become their whole world because by not only, there's this aspect of isolation that happens just Mm -hmm. inherently when you're with somebody who's um, psychologically abusive. 
Yes. There's also, in my experience, both personally and from conversations I've had with other people, they isolate themselves as well. They become your primary concern. Their well-being yes. outweighs your well-being. And every yes. ounce of your focus and attention goes into considering how things impact them. And yes. I just had this conversation with a, a friend of mine who had said, you know, it was like, I just was never considered. And mm -hmm. I thought, God, that is the perfect way of explaining it. It's so simple, but so true is that you have to beg them to just validate a little bit what you're feeling. And instead of doing that, what you just said is what happens. They're projecting all of the blame yes. onto you. And now yes. you are not only taking responsibility for what they're doing and saying and possibly feeling or just straight up manipulating you about, but now you're, you have that weighing on you about why they would feel that way. And yeah. so yeah. you're just in this constant state of disarray and trying to find the balance of how do I give them what they need and try to get some of what you need. But every time you try to get what you need, it's just like swatted away. Right. And you know, I actually, last night I was tossing and turning, which I do sometimes. And I have been reading this book that really talks about how our beliefs create our reality and the deepest subconscious beliefs ultimately are manifested. And we prove ourselves right over and over again, even when we're not consciously aware of them. And the one that hit me last night that it's been running in my head all morning is I don't matter. And that I learned that at a very, very young age that my needs were too much and too overwhelming for my parents. My emotions were too overwhelming. So they didn't matter. I, I was the you know, the child who took care of my sister, who parented my parents. And then when my dad left, clearly I didn't matter. You know, I learned from boys that my body didn't matter because it was what they wanted. I learned that all of these things got repeated in my life. And then with my ex-husband, I learned that my emotions, my needs, my body also didn't matter. And everything was created, was given to me in that reality. And so every time I did want something or something did come up for me, I was only basically told again, it doesn't matter. And because that was my deep pattern, I continued to just be like, okay, well, this is what we're doing. So everything that focused for me, the only thing that could matter was my children. And so the only thing I could actually hold was, okay, they matter. So what do they need? And because of my beliefs that they need their father and they need a family and they need these things, it only made it worse. And that's why it took me seeing them in danger for me to actually go do anything about it because only now... <laughs> Years later, am I going, wait a minute, I, I do get to matter. You 100% get to matter. Um, I completely share that sentiment, Amanda. And as an observer of your story and how that is really manifesting into what you're creating for yourself now, it's a beautiful thing to see because so many people allow these moments in their life to define their path as well. And people can easily stay stuck in that. People can yes. stay stuck in the trauma. And in fact, I think that is really a big part of what contributed to my ex ultimately being the type of person that she is. Mm -hmm. And this part of me gets frustrated with myself for still having empathy for them. It's like, but I actually feel sad that mm -hmm. that's the way that your life has gone, that you see it as you'd rather stay in this existence yeah. being the way that you are and creating chaos in other people's lives as well as your own then working on healing through that to live a better life like don't you want to live a better life i feel like i came out of it and i was like well shit like i don't want it to <laughs> keep sucking right. the whole goal is you left you want it to be better right no i completely agree and it is it's hard to watch it's hard to watch as somebody who you know is intuitive does have empathy and can see the potential for people we can see the the very hurt person underneath it all, we can see the trauma that they're still holding on to. And, and I think that's why we get sucked into this role as healer and helper and all the things, because we see people for all of them and what they could be if they just wanted to see it. Oh my God. The way you just said that too. It's like the amount of times I hinged on just the smallest bit of potential, and it's like, but they're not riding that wave and creating more opportunity out of it. They're like shoving that part way aside and they're navigating life through this lens of who they have decided they're going to yes. be. And then that creates this domino effect on the people around them. And, you know, yes. 
with your children being really a primary focus of and and driver, I should say, of why you were able to finally make the decision to leave and and move through your journey in a more healing way, separate of your ex, was there a specific moment that it really clicked for you? Yes. So my middle child, who was six at the time, he started basically sharing things that shocked me, the things that would come out of his mouth. I'd be like, Oh, Oh my God. Like, and it, cause we were already in the separation process. We were already going through, I realized I couldn't stay with somebody who had been admitting to soliciting adult escorts, which is all that he would actually admit to. And I, we started that, but I still thought he needed to be in the kids' lives somehow. I just, we needed to figure out how to co-parent and it was infuriated by the manipulation and the gaslighting, but still, you know, that that's not illegal actually. And, you know, and so maybe it should be, but it's not. One also, and, that's the whole issue with the psychological abuse is that if you don't have bruises to prove it, how right. can you validate it? And that's a whole separate discussion, but I mean, a rabbit hole I've gone down myself many times. Right. Right. It's, it's in fact, perhaps more damaging. And then, but then seeing my six-year-old child talk about things that raised the hairs on the back of my neck and made me realize that he was being groomed and there was actual harm being set up. And I didn't think anything had happened, but the, the boundary violations were moving. And that's the thing with people in these really addictive cycles is they always need, they need to push the boundary a little harder. They need the next, because it's not it's not the, the sex. It's not about the arousal. It's about the control. It's about the boundary. It's about the high of going a little farther. I saw that behavior in various things, but then when I started to see it with my kids and I started to see it as a way to control me, I, I had this moment where I went, Oh, wait a minute. He, this was the man who was arrested for trying to have sex with children. Like <laughs> hello. And then all of the red flags came it's like all of a sudden I opened this awareness door and all of the red flags for our entire marriage, our entire relationship, the fact that I was 18 when we started dating, the fact that he romanticized my teenage promiscuity, the fact that he wanted other men to join us in the bedroom, like all the things just blue, blue, blue. Oh, wait now. Well, fuck now. What am I going to do? That was my rock bottom moment because I had, we had already been almost a year into the legal fight at that point. And I was already trying to not share 50 50, but I didn't know what the right answer was. Yeah. And I didn't know how to make the sense of this. And so I had the lawyers and I had the parental rights evaluators and I had all these specialists involved to say, this is our recommendation based on all of these things. It was that moment when I realized I'm likely going to end up sharing a man who's going to abuse my children because the path that is going down, all of the recommendations are still basically 50 50 with a few allowances here and there. I even called child protective services and they interviewed and terrified my child and he hid under the table and then probation polygraphed my ex-husband and went, Oh, he's good and dropped it. And I was like, none of these systems are protective. We have this idea in society that, that the cops, that the legal system, that all these people are supposed to protect us. But the reality is that the system is only punitive. It's only reactive to things that have already happened that we can prove that's it. And I realized that I was the one that was going to have to make this happen. I was going to be the one who had to change to shift this. And I was actually with my mental health, regular therapist who, as I was talking to her, she was appalled. She's been in the system. She's like, what is going on? She said, have you ever thought about seeing a psychic? I was like, what, what? Like, that's nuts. the advice you're giving me right now. <laughs> that's yeah. I was like, like a fortune teller, like you crazy lady. And she's like, I was like she's like, no, no, I know a good one fuck, I'll try anything. Like that's where I mean, I, I get at. you. I'm a, yeah, you're like, I, I will say I do feel much more connected to spirituality yes. as I was going through a lot of trauma and not even just related to my ex, but losing my mom at the same time. And it was like, you're grasping for something. Yes, yes. exactly. So you're, you're, I will do whatever you want me to do. Exactly. It feels like there's a possibility <laughs> of getting through this on the other side and being able to look back and be like, we're done right. with that. So I went to go see her psychic lady because I was just like, whatever, I'll try anything. And, you know, the rest of y'all aren't helping me. So maybe this lady can. And, you know, my mom had been very spiritual growing up, but I was rejecting everything connected to my upbringing. And this lady was very, she was just like, she was so confident in herself and her gifts. She basically sits me down and she starts reading a past life. She was reading a past life where 
he and him were been together and in this life he would been a drunk and he was physically violent but the energy behind was the same there was still fear there was still manipulations there was still all of this stuff but it just manifested a little bit differently and when she started talking to me she was repeating all of the justifications in my head that had that I had been telling myself over the last four years about why I had to stay and I was like okay that's weird okay here I'm listening and then she starts telling me about my ending in that life where he threw me down the stairs and beat me to death in front of my children. And my whole body has this like visceral response. And I start recognizing that I'm holding, I'm terrified of him. He'd never laid a hand on me and I'm terrified of him. And I have this moment where I'm like, okay, that's why I'm so scared of him. That's, that's what I'm, I'm holding onto this fear. And she says, you got to get a hold on that fear. You got to stop operating with fear because this isn't then you can own property. You can leave, you can do all these things. This isn't 500 years ago. And she said, the reason you are here, the reason you are sitting down in this chair in this moment is you need to make a choice. And I said, I did choose, like I'm doing all the things. She said, no, you haven't chosen yet. The reason you're here is because you have not chosen to basically let go of him completely forever to never go down this path because he has no desire to get better. The truth was I was still holding on to some hope that he would get his shit together, that he would see his demons, that he would want to be a better father, that he would want to be a better human. And I think a lot of us do that. We hold on to this, this possibility that they're going to heal. They're going to get better. They're going to something. And maybe we're never going to be a family again, but the kids are going to have a dad in their lives. Cause I didn't want this situation. I didn't want any of it. And she said, you have not chosen, actually chosen yourself, actually chosen to be done with this pattern. And I said, okay, I, I see it. And I, and I'm done. I'm, I'm done. She said, okay, good. I can help you. I was like, okay, what am I not doing? Cause I think I'm doing everything. And you know, you're talking about your friends who feel like they're doing everything. They're, they're hiring all the people. They're getting all the evidence, all the things. And this is about six weeks before my court case is about to be. And so I'm like, we are right about it to be in it. And I can see the trajectory where we're going to get 50, 50 again. And I'm terrified because nobody seems to be doing anything. And she says, there's more people who want to help you. There's more people out there and you need to keep going. You need to keep asking because there are people who see it, but they need, they need more and they need you to basically keep going. And I was like, okay, I don't, I don't know. She says, everybody who you think of who pops into your head, call them because everybody knows somebody and somebody's knows somebody. And there's, there's ways, there's other data out there. There's other information out there. And then she was looking at, at him and saying, you know, he's had lifetimes and after lifetimes of abuse and trauma, but he's not choosing to get better. He's not choosing that path. And you can't, you can't choose for him. He's, he's basically digging his hole even deeper. That's his choice. Right. It's the part for me that was the hardest to acknowledge because yeah. I was witnessing a chronic downfall. I mean, yes. we had been together for over a decade. I was 21 when we met. She was 30. And I didn't understand what trauma bonding was, and that happened really early on. I was cheated on the first 10 months of our relationship with her ex that was like, I, from the beginning, had said, I, I'm concerned about this. Should I be worried? I don't want to get in the middle of something, blah, 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 right? So it's like yeah. the boundary was broken. I got pulled back in. And I stayed and I stayed and I stayed and I kept justifying it by being like, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah. here's all these things. But when I am now in a situation where I'm with somebody who sees me so fully, who respects me, who regards me as part of their life and is so integrated into my life instead of trying to isolate me and isolate themselves, it's so obvious how <laughs> little there was. And mm -hmm. one of my friends described it as like, there was no Venn diagram, right? It was like the only thing, it was like, this is her life, this is my life. And then the only thing that ties it together is the fact that we are technically together, but there's nothing that like really fits into who we are as people that would make this work if there weren't me desperately holding on to it, trying to make it work. Because it was a very one-sided circumstance. There would be little moments, right? Otherwise you wouldn't stay. They're like little things. My now wife always says to me 
surely there must have been something that kept you there. I'm not going to deny that there were moments of, I, I wouldn't ever call it peace, but I would say like relative happiness yeah. Um, yeah. or what I perceived to be as happiness at the time. And what it was really in retrospect is not chaos. The bar was so low that I guess that was happiness. But I do think that the hard part is looking at the situation and saying, doing everything that I can do means pulling away completely. And you made the yeah. comment about prioritizing yourself and what you needed to do. And that encompasses for you, including your children, right? Yes. And exactly getting to that place where you don't have a choice because you've decided you don't have a choice is a really empowering and also daunting moment. It is. And I left that session with a psychic, a, a different person, honestly. I I immediately went, okay, I can do this. I don't know what that looks like yet, but I'm going to do this. And I'm not going to stop until I succeed. I and mean, I can't fail because I'm not going to stop trying. Even if this doesn't work in court, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep trying. I started talking to more people and literally what unfolded over the next six weeks was nothing short of miraculous. I got the criminal case file unsealed. I got in touch with Homeland Security. I got more data and more evidence, more recordings of my kids. I ended up with an evidence binder that was three inches full of data compared to his couple of stapled pieces of paper. And I just wouldn't stop. And my lawyers even told me after the, after court, they were like, you did this, you created this. And this is what I think is important for anybody in these legal situations. The system is not designed to protect you. The system is not designed to fix anything. You have to provide the evidence. You have to be the person to stand in your truth and speak your truth. And then the system can work for it, for you but we're not at the mercy of it. We have to use it and work with it, but it's up to us to do so. Absolutely. It's up to us to not give our power and our safety and our security to an outside system because that's not actually what it's there for. I know we dove right into the conversation and I appreciate that because what I want is for people to read your book <laughs> and get a sense of really your whole unfolding of your experience and, um, the trajectory that has catapulted you to where you are now with the success of the book and the ability to voice your message and have a platform for it. But what was the catalyst for you realizing that your ex-husband was really not who you thought he was? His arrest blindsided me like a hundred percent. He just didn't come home that one night and I had no idea where he was. And I was so shocked. I thought, it was a mistake. Like somebody stole his wallet. It couldn't even have been him, that version of blindsided. So the wake up process wasn't instantaneous. I think some people, something big enough happens and they can't refute it. But because I was so sure that there had to be some other explanation, the moment he gave me one, even though it didn't really make sense, I grasped onto that explanation and decided this must be true. And I found all of the ways to make it true in my head. Do you feel like you and, forced yourself to believe it? Like the way that yeah, you just 100%. said that, because that's how I felt too. Yeah. It was like, I chose to believe her, yes. even though I didn't actually believe her. And I always do this when I say it, because it's like, I can feel it. It's like, I know that like my heart and my gut were like, this doesn't add up. Your brain is not connecting the dots because the dots don't connect. But you're like, okay, but they're so insistent yep. that you, you are the irrational one <laughs> that you're Makes like, okay, I guess that's the case. And I had cops telling me that she could be living a double life and like open your fucking eyes. And it was like, no, you don't understand. She's been traumatized. This is dissociative behavior and da 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 da. Okay, maybe yes. some of it was, but like there's also a lot of intentional decision-making. Right. And I was so sure because his story was that he he was admitting to adult escorts, but he, okay. I would never ever touch children. I... I didn't even believe that they were really offering children. I thought they were just going to rip people off. And, but I had to make sure because if it was real, I had to report it. But, you know, I, I knew his autistic like tendencies to hyper-focus and to want to solve a puzzle. So I would, okay, okay. I can maybe see how you might do something like that. His original charge was attempted human trafficking. Okay. And that was the first arrest charge. What he ended up pleading guilty to was attempted solicitation. And you received a call like in the middle of the night. No, that this had happened. no, he just didn't come home. Oh, he just okay. didn't come home. I was expecting him home and then he didn't come home. And this was not an uncommon occurrence. And I, you know, his phone went straight to voicemail and he just stopped responding. And I went, I'm going to bed. I guess he'll show up when he shows up. 
because he had historically been late and not responding. And I said, I've got babies, so I'm going to go to sleep. And then at two 30 in the morning, I woke up and he still wasn't home. And that was now unusual. It had mm-hmm. never been that late before I called the hospitals and no John Doe's nothing. And I've literally I, been there. It's terrifying. Yeah. And so then I went back to bed because I have a one-year-old, I have a nursing child at this point. And so I'm like ninja sneaking out of bed to try to make phone calls because you don't want to wake the baby. And then at five 30 in the morning, he's still not home. I can't go look for him. I have three sleeping kids in my house. What do I do? And at that point I got the idea to call non-emergency dispatch. It just came into my mind and I called them and I said, I know it's not been 24 hours, but I don't, I don't know what to do. Maybe there's some, something I can, you guys can help me with. And they said, well, let's transfer you to the jail and call us back. And then we'll, we can help you. And I was like, okay, I'll call you right back because furthest thing from my mind. When the lady at the jail answers, she says, yeah, we have him. The charge for attempted human trafficking with a $250,000 bond. And I was like, what, what? Do you, you feel like it was an out-of-body experience? It was I an out-of-body like experience. There was like a, huh? <laughs> like, I didn't even know what the charge meant. You know, the, my head went to shipping containers and borders and we lived in a tiny little Colorado town. I was like, what? It doesn't even make sense. You know, I was like, he worked in IT security. Like we, what? It didn't, it was such a disconnect from any version of what I could possibly understand to be true that I, I was like, okay, something is wrong. And he's somehow involved and I have to help him. That was my initial thought is oh my I God, have I to help that. him because, because he's in trouble, but it's not him. Like that's, it wasn't like, oh, he's fucked up. That's not what I thought. <laughs> God, it's so crazy though. Right. You said it, your empathy overrides yeah. your logic at that point, because you're like, oh my God, yes. this person's in trouble. I need to help that person because I've defined myself as the reliable source for this person. Yes. Yes. So at 5 30 in the morning, I'm calling bills, bondsmen, I'm calling lawyers. I'm calling like all these people because I've that's my job now is to go fix this somehow because he's in trouble. He needs help. I don't even, it doesn't even occur to me that he might have caused this trouble. Right. No. (laughs) That's kind of denial too, that like you experience as a significant other of somebody who's manipulative and going through these things and ultimately creating all this chaos in your life. It really just shines a light on how that fixer mentality takes over. And this is something I've worked through in therapy. I still talk about it. It's like even little things that don't require me to feel that way. (laughs) But, but is there something that I can do about that? Can I make somebody else's life easier? And it's like, you can't even process what's happening. So everything that you're doing is so instinctive based on all of the abuse that they've conducted prior to this moment happening. And it's almost like they did it in a way, even if it's not by design, that it kind of feels like it because Mm -hmm. I remember after my ex assaulted me and I called the cops the next day because I had to say I wouldn't to get her out of my house. I was like, you're pissed that I called the cops after you abused me because you kept saying to me, the thing that you fear the most is going to jail. Well, if you don't want to go to jail, don't do things that'll get you put in jail. Right. Right. But you're feeling guilty while you're doing it because, you know, you're clearly you're at fault here. You've somehow deserved it, or you, you could have done different, or you could have changed it some way, or you, you have all of these things in your head. It's somehow you still need to fix it. Yeah. There's no control that you can have in moments like that, but your brain is still telling you that there's something. Now I do think for me, it was a little bit different at that very specific point, but the other things leading up to it, where it was like, defend, 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 Mm -hmm. keep them safe. Meanwhile, I'm completely sacrificing my safety. And it sounds like that's where you were at with this point too. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And even after we go to the bond hearing and they tell us that they're going to actually charge him with more serious crimes and they were going to originally up his charge from attempted human trafficking to human trafficking. And I I still am like, something is wrong. How do I help him? I have to go get him out of there. He doesn't belong in jail. That's my thought process. Isn't, oh, clearly there's something here. It's why is he being dragged into this? This isn't him. And you know, I used to say I'm an, I'm amazing at a crisis because my trauma response is to act, is to move, is to do something, is to fix it. I don't, I don't shut down. I don't hide, but I'm operating with, yeah, I'm operating with all of that default programming as I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, I'm amazing at a crisis. I mean, then I don't shut down, but I'm not, I'm not aware of what I'm doing either. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely a 
for very lack of better term, complex series of events and emotions that collide in moments like that. And so you've basically just been forced to wrap your head around something that is would have before that moment been so historically inconceivable to you that it's essentially looking at it going, oh, if I leave, I'm going to blow things up, um, mm -hmm. not realizing that you're already standing in the fire. And so right. when you finally got to the place where, I mean, obviously it sounds like you were able to get your ex-husband out of jail at that point. Yes. Yes. We, we had investments and I, I literally paid the $250,000 and bailed him out because that was my job. And people look at it like you did what we couldn't have taken that money. And I was like, no, no, I couldn't have. It didn't even occur to me, honestly, to pack up my kids and go. It wasn't a conscious thought. I didn't say, no, no, I'm not going to go do that. The only conscious thought was go help him. That's yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like the financial cost is its own circumstance that is a very tough pill to swallow. I can speak to that myself as well. There were multiple cars totaled. There was a lot of money that was mm -hmm. lost, um, went missing, fake doctor's appointments, like things like that, where you're just like, you, you made a noise earlier that was like, brr, like you sort of rewind everything through your head and like, <laughs> oh my God, it was so fucking obvious. Like, right. like, what was I doing? Like, why was I not acknowledging how obvious yeah. all of these yeah. things were when you combine them? But the thing that a lot of people tried to say to me is you were so close to it. And when you're in yeah. it, it's yeah. very hard to see yeah. the bits and pieces leading up to it. And that used to aggravate me a little bit because I thought I was in it. I should have been able to see it so clearly. It was right in front of my face. But the reality yeah. is that you can't construct the timeline of events the same way because you are in an abusive relationship like that, when it's very deeply psychological and it starts early on, you are in it before you even can understand that you're in it. And Correct. so then all of those little things that keep piling on are inputs into your trauma and less being looked at as these are, as you said, sort of like those red flags that just come yeah. flying right in at you after the exactly. fact. Because in those individual moments, it was like every time I planned to leave, something catastrophic would happen. And so right. my body and brain got used to this idea of if something good happens, then the shoe will drop. Or if I feel safe, the shoe will drop. And so I couldn't get to a state of feeling calm and at peace because the hypervigilance and that survival mode is where I lived for so long yes. that you don't even understand how deeply traumatic all of the things that lead up to these moments are because you're perceiving them to be yep. typical everyday life events, even though you know they're not. Your body's homeostasis is flight or flight. Mm -hmm. That's normal. Totally. That's, and and anything outside of that is wrong and not okay. <laughs> and you're like, how are other people calm? What is that like? <laughs> I don't even know, but you don't even know it's a thing because you're in it. Mm -hmm. And it took me years to see it. And this, this is, this is a hard one for people because wait, he was arrested for what? And you did what? You didn't see it, huh? It took me years and it wasn't an instantaneous. I mean, there was the moment where I saw all the things all of a sudden with my kids, but it took me years to start to actually even see, wait, I mean, okay. Once we got over the criminal trial, I actually can't be in the marriage with him. I actually can't be with somebody who's even admitting to what he's admitting to. And there was literal ghosts that felt like they were showing up and I could feel all of the people that he had been with every time he wanted to be intimate with me. And it would be like, I, I can't, I can't, I can't. Every time you look at me, that's how you looked at them. Like that, that kept repeating in my head. And so I started to distance myself, but then I felt guilty for doing that because my job was to keep the family together. Right. I turned to alcohol for a little while. I would come home from work and have half, half a bottle of wine to even look at him because it was my fault that I was now blowing the family up. Yeah. And, you know, I started looking outside of the marriage because I needed somebody who didn't have a bunch of ghosts, but I wasn't going to do it in secret. And so I told him that I wasn't okay. And I wanted to separate. And he said, Oh, you go do your thing, but we're going to, we'll keep the family together, pulling on all of my strings to want to keep the family together. So then I was the problem, right? I was openly dating while living with my, you know, sex offender husband and my children really messy, but all on me again, all on me to figure this out, to keep it together. And then once that relationship ended, he wanted to get back together because, well, you got, you got yours, right? So we're even now and just continuing to deepen, same. not quite the same. No, 
continuing to deepen and I started to see the manipulations, but they were slow. It took, it would be like, that's not okay. And, and now that I'm no longer as connected to you, this is really not okay, but I'm still so stuck. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you said it that way too, because when I became really aware, like you called it sort of your awakening Mm -hmm. was there had been a series of events that had gone on, but um, because my car had been totaled multiple times with really minimal to no explanation, I got a dash cam for my car because that felt like the responsible thing to do since you keep crashing my cars. And this last time that it happened, I ended up looking at the dash cam, not even suspecting to find anything other than like, how did this accident happen? Finding out, not seeing it into the car because it wasn't a, a um, an inward facing camera as well. It just faced outward, but the audio was there that she had been taking my car to basically like homeless encampments to get drugs and to do drugs and is doing heroin in my car as a police car is driving by with like my plates on it, things that are assigned to my name. Right. So I'm looking at this and then she straight up denies it when I call her out on it. And so that feeling of I'm disconnected from you, like this is not, this makes, first of all, it made me feel really stupid for buying into it as long as I did or allowing myself to, let's say, believe the alternate reality that I was being presented with instead of living in the actual reality that was. Right. I remember having this moment where like after the fact then too, it was like she was going through this really serious withdrawal, but no, no, she she didn't have a drug problem. And meanwhile, there's also a therapist involved in this who is completely manipulated by the situation and also creating more chaos. And I stayed like another month after that before finally deciding I have to go. So I will go and I will see my family and I will deal with my things there. Thankfully, when I was there, I was able to separate myself from it and feel that disconnect that you're talking about enough of it to like start to perceive my own reality again. And then still being tied to the fact that like these things are clearly happening. Why am I worried about that? Why is it my job to manage your life as an adult? And having to relinquish that responsibility that we've placed on ourselves is one of the hardest things to do because you've spent so much time trying to protect and defend this person that is now very obviously harmful to you because it is only in hindsight that you can put the pieces together and be like that's really fucked up like it just escalates and escalates and escalates but it's like the series of events aren't linear no they're not. And, you know, the, the process took a long time, you know, me going back to work meant I started to disconnect from him a little bit more. Me starting to date actually allowed me to see myself as not just mom and wife in that role, but I still kept so much of it. And realizing I couldn't be married to him was another step and another piece. And then seeing my kids in danger really snapped me, but the completely irrefutable proof that I got was when I got the case file unsealed. And I actually got to read the transcript of what happened four years later, because, you know, people don't realize in criminal cases, you don't get, the family doesn't get the information, especially if it never goes to trial. That's really messed up. Yeah. But you don't get it because it's part of their evidence. If they're going to go to trial, you, they don't, you don't get that information. Exactly. And so a lot of times when it does go to trial, the family who's in, who is shocked because of all of the things that come up, but because he took a plea deal, everything was sealed. But the, all criminal cases are public record once any identifiable information is redacted. And so one of the phone calls I made after I met with the psychic was to the DA because somebody suggested I call him. So I did. And he says, well, you know, what I can do is unseal the case file for you because it is public record once I do that. And I said, please, I have never seen it. And so I got the actual transcript between him and the undercover agent. And that was the irrefutable, oh my God, because I'd been intimate with the man. I had three kids with the man. I knew some of his preferences and things. And so when I was able to read it and, and feel it from him, it was like, oh my God, not only did he intend to go through with this, but this is not the first time. And that hit me really hard. And that was a month before court. In this moment, I'm still having to send my kids back over there four times a week to be with him unsupervised because of the temporary order that was in place because of the way the statutes were. And there was nothing I could do because it would have been kidnapping if I, if I took my kids. I can't even believe that they allowed unsupervised. 
That's insane to me. That's true in most states right now is that sex offenders constitutional right to parent is more important than the children's safety because people just assume that your right to familial relations matters more than, you know, the criminal offense. Yeah. Or just the safety of your children. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's actually gone more that direction because the statute changed like a month before he pled guilty. It was like a crazy timing thing. And so it used to be more actually punitive. And now it's even less because people are more focused on their individual constitutional rights. And so it's a really fascinating set of things, but it was infuriating and terrifying to be sending my children back over there unable to supervise, unable to do anything. I had no access to his records because he didn't want me to see them. And at the same time, he's still trying to convince me to get back together with him while alienating and manipulating my children and sexually grooming them and all of the things. Like it was, it was the most intense period in my life and took the most out of me to be so certain of my truth because in that moment, I couldn't question what I was doing. I couldn't wonder if I was doing the right thing. I couldn't go down this path of maybe he does deserve to be in the kids' lives because clearly nobody seems to see this but me. Like I couldn't do that. I had to be so certain that what I was doing was the right thing. And if this didn't work, then the next thing would, because I was going to keep trying and going to keep going. And we filed motions to try to restrict his parenting time that didn't go through. And that was even more scary, but I was making my intentions known for the court so that when we came down to it, everything I had been doing was showing how concerned I was. Oh yeah. It's document everything, everything that you are legally allowed to document. And the other thing that I will say, because I think this one's really important for anybody listening who might be in a situation is there are certain States where you can record without consent of both parties. And Colorado was one. So everything was recorded. Oh, I wish I had that. (laughs) Everything was recorded and he would actually record too. And it was funny because he would times where he really fucked up, he would actually show the evaluator how amazing he was and how upset the kids were to be with me because of all of his alienating behavior, because it got to the point where they were angry with me because I was mad at daddy. That's why we couldn't be together. He would show everybody how, you know, not awesome of a mom I was while actually proving my point that he was the one causing all of this. It's literally like listening to conversations uh, that I, that I've had. And it's so true, Amanda, the arrogance of people who are yes. in the wrong in these situations is shocking, honestly, because you're like, I literally, I know that the system isn't built to benefit me in this regard. Right. Like you said, the work is on you. And a lot of times that doesn't even net positive for you. But mm-hmm. the fact that so many of these people believe that showing what they're doing isn't going to implicate them further is kind of comical because you're like, anybody who has some awareness of what psychological abuse is and the, to your point, grooming or Mm -hmm. um, manipulation of gaslighting, anything like that, that is so transparent. It is textbook. It's unoriginal. It is. is. And I was being interviewed by another podcast and it's run by a judge and a child protective services worker. And she was telling me that the majority of people who end up calling the cops on in domestic disturbances are the ones who cause the problem. Like they start it, but they cause, they call the cops because they think they're in the right and they truly believe they're bullshit. They're completely pathological in this sense. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really common in that sense to be pushing the blame and because nobody's perfect. And because we don't always act with the best, you know, and we are reactive and we are carrying trauma. We question ourselves. I can tell you how many times I'm like, am I the narcissist? Is this, is this me? Is this, is is this the problem? And my mom would be like, Amanda, it takes a narcissist to make you feel like one. Well, I like that. And I was going to say the fact that you're questioning it means you're not right. Well, exactly. Right. If you even have that thought, probably not even after full psychological evaluations, which we, we had done in all of that, you know, and he was the one with personality disorders and the major depression and all the things. And I was psychologically normal. I was still questioning myself because that's the natural normal thing to do is to go, wait, how can I change? How can I help this situation? How can I, you know, be the better parent? And how can I make this easier? But instead, what they're doing is they're going, oh, that that button there, let me poke it. Let me make you feel worse. Let me bring up all the things that you did wrong so we get to be equal. It was his favorite thing to do was this false equivalence. Well, you went out and dated, so we're equal. I was like, you slept with how many escorts that you're even admitting to and we're equal? And that was a plea deal. 
<laughs> well, he took a plea deal for attempted solicitation of a minor, but what he admitted to me was that he was, he had solicited adult escorts. So he was basically admitting to prostitution of adults, That's which he justified because, you know, he was paying them and helping them or something. He never would admit to children. And but also that's so did. violating for you too, I imagine. A hundred percent. Like how disrespected you would feel as an individual psychologically, but physically too. Yes. It's like, that's such a violation of your trust. And yes. that puts you in a very physically unsafe place as well. It does. And if I started to have feelings about it, if I started to be like my husband of six, seven years, cheated on me 50, hundred plus times while I was pregnant, while I was nursing, putting my health in danger, my children's health in danger. And if I started to have those feelings, it would bubble up. He would immediately shove the love bombing. He would immediately go, I'm changed. I'm different. I'm getting help. I see it. I wasn't allowed to be angry. I wasn't allowed to feel the feelings because how dare I, how dare I imply that he's not doing everything now to be better. And this is an opportunity. This was his rock bottom. So we're going to be a, the family I always wanted again. And I, and I had to just, okay. Just like every time when he came home, I just, okay, I guess, I guess we have to let it go. You know, the part that you said about you weren't allowed to feel your feelings. Oh God, it rings so true to me, Amanda. They will justify their behavior to the ends of the earth. But as soon as you need validation for what you're feeling and not even need validation, but recognition yeah. that you are traumatizing me. Yeah. I wrote a list for my ex before I left to go back to um, the East Coast and said, just so you know, these are all the things that I think about consistently and that I feel because of the things that have happened during our relationship. And it was like four pages single spaced of this is the shit that's going through my mind. So when you disregard me, this is what I hold on to. And yeah. to your point. I'll change. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. it really affected me. Blah, 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 blah. And then you're like, yep. and then literally nothing changed. In fact, it actually got worse. Right. Right. Because then you, the same cycle starts re repeating itself. Right. And so it's this up and down and up and down and your body becomes literally addicted to those highs and lows. And it's, it's a dopamine hit and then a withdrawal in it without the drug, but it, with our own hormonal responses. Yeah. My ex actually even wrote me a letter once he thought that by admitting to all of his, his d wrongdoings that I was going to somehow forgive him and release it. And, uh, what it actually did was show me how cold and calculating he'd been the whole freaking time. Yeah. It's interesting. I had, um, probably not quite that same type of letter, but moments yeah. and things written down that were just so shallow at the end of the day. Um, you know, I know we have a limited amount of time and I definitely want to give you a chance to also speak to what you're doing now, which I think is yeah. really great. And so you have a healing practice where you are mm -hmm. offering coaching services. And as I mentioned earlier, speaking engagements around mm -hmm. just going through these processes and how you can help others. So would you share a little bit about how um, that really came to be for you and what your goal is right now to help others? Yeah. So you know, like I said in the beginning, the message to, to share the story, to launch the book was so loud. And the more research we did, especially coming into the publishing phase, not a single person has ever told the wife story. So you have the victim story in trafficking, you have the predator story, but nobody has ever told the wife story. And the amount of shame and guilt that people are holding, not just in, you know, these type of situations, but in any type of abusive relationship so rarely is it, are we able to talk about it? And so after that realism, well, well, I have to share the story. I have to share the story. And not only do I have to share the story, but I have to do something more because I'm not holding on to the shame and guilt anymore. I'm not holding on to judgment of myself for doing the best I could with the information I had. And I can see the progression and the lessons and the learning that I needed so that I could have the compassion and understanding of why people stay in these relationships and what it takes to come out of them. And so my goal now is to really advocate for trauma understanding. I would love to, I've actually had visions of myself speaking in front of Congress and trying to advocate for trauma-informed legal practices, because this is a natural, normal human response. Mm -hmm. Our biological responses are natural and normal. And yet it's our job to educate at our expense and re-traumatize and relive these things over and over again when this is actually happening every day. And I would really love to help people feel less alone in their stories. And the amount of people who have come to me and said, 
oh my God, I thought I was the only one who was that stupid. Not to call you stupid, but I thought I was the only one. And I want people to know they're not alone. I want people who are sharing custody with their abusers and their children's abusers to know they're not alone and that there are ways to get out of it in other and there are still things that can be done and we don't have to give up on living the life that we think we have to because the systems told us that's what we have to do and I want to I want people to know that we truly can change and but it has to come from our desire to do so and we can't force anybody else to change and heal but we can choose to do so for ourselves and it's not our fault that these things happen to us but we're the only ones who get to choose to change them and, and to come out of it and so the the platform that I'm forming and it's it's been in a big shift since I launched my book because people are coming to me for very different things all of a sudden which is super fun but the amount of people coming to me going I have a big story too how do I overcome this now that I've come on the other side of it mm-hmm. is is a lot and so I actually have started another book and I've started another book about the healing journey and the healing process. And I'm calling it so far, it sounds like it's going to be called becoming whole because we're not broken. That's the other thing. We have this idea that we're broken, that we need to be healed. But the truth is our bodies acted to keep us safe and to keep us safe. in the only reality we, we knew, and they acted appropriately. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. And we need to recognize and not hold the judgment of that. And choose to create something new and to seek safety, not outside of self, but from within ourselves, because that's ultimately what's going to create it in our external reality. And so I want to share more about that. And I want to, you know, speak on stages and I want to advocate for trauma information, for awareness of how close to home, all of these things can hit and how many people are in these situations so that all of this darkness can come to light. What an absolutely wonderful message and mission, Amanda. I obviously throughout this have been interjecting my moments of relatability. So thank you for um, holding space for that as well. I really applaud your energy and effort behind this. It's something that we need societally um, for so many reasons. And also to, as you said, draw attention to the part of the story that doesn't often get told or at least doesn't get the opportunity to be as publicized and you know something that really stands out to me too as i was um, prepping for this episode was just going on to your website um, amandaquickhealing.com and seeing the testimonials of the people that you've worked with and really just the genuine gratitude that radiates from every single one of those messages and the sense of understanding that you provide to people and giving them that opportunity to feel seen and heard, especially when you're coming out of abusive situations. You said this early on, right? Like, I don't matter. You do matter. We all matter. And it's an important moment for each of us when we realize that we have some semblance of control of how we move forward with our lives. We can't always dictate the exact circumstances, but we can find ways to integrate the parts Mm -hmm. of ourself that we maybe do carry shame around. I know for me, that was a big part of it. It's the accountability that I Mm -hmm. held in staying in that relationship, but that's also accountability is not the same as blame. And it's important to understand that within ourselves so that we don't hold on to that shame. And I really just feel so deeply connected to your story um, for the obvious reasons from what we've discussed here, but also the fact that we both do have a happy ending with somebody that we've met since who's shown us what it means to feel safe now that we feel safe within ourselves and being able to share that with somebody who values that. It's been really just such an amazing opportunity to hear your side of things. So absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of times trauma is what awakens people to more truths and whether you call it God or the universe or spirit or whatever, it's language. It doesn't matter it's recognizing there's more, there's a bigger purpose. There's a bigger reason that we go through these things and we go through it so that we can learn the lessons and help other people and to be the light on the other side. To me, that's the only thing that makes any sense. And so I have to hold on to that and I have to keep going with it. And the more darkness I can bring to light and the more shame we can let go of, the more we can evolve as a collective and, and stop hiding in the shadows. Oh, absolutely. I could not share that sentiment more. And on that note, I just truly appreciate you. And gang, that's all for this episode of Who the Fuck. Amanda, thank you so much for sharing your story and taking the time to chat. 
I could definitely go on about this for a while <laughs> with you. So if our conversation resonated with you as a listener and you want to learn more about Amanda's services, as I mentioned, you can go to amandaquickhealing.com or follow her Facebook page slash amandaquickhealing. But you can also get a copy of Amanda's book, The Sex Trafficker's Wife, on Amazon, as well as Barnes & Noble, it looks like. So I'll put links yep. to those in the show notes. And of course... Everybody's on TikTok these days, at least until it's outruled. So hop onto TikTok and follow at the sex trafficker's wife to get more content from Amanda in the meantime. So I, again, appreciate you and thank you so much for your time and energy. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid.